I'm going to give those seniors a break because one of the things I'd really contemplated doing was to just have them sit right here, line up like in vacation Bible school. Matter of fact, we ought to just play that song and let them just march in, just sit down here and do all the pledges and stuff that they did when they were kids. When I was preparing this message, these seniors kept coming to my mind. So I will tell you this morning quite readily that the door was opened for me to speak to these seniors, to recognize also that while I'm speaking to them largely, there'll be great value in your listening and paying careful attention because there will be a whole lot in this message for everyone. The Lord opened a door on the topic when I was studying and preparing that uh, I just felt necessary to share. The book of Titus is where we'll be going this morning. It's a letter written by Paul to a much younger Titus. Titus had been a very loved and trusted friend of Paul. He had been his companion. He had been a messenger for him when he needed to be. But right now in this letter, Paul has left him in Crete to tend to a church. And I want to tell you, it was a place where there was a handful of problems all large that Titus needed to deal with. So Paul is giving disruption to this much younger friend of his with great responsibility and great privilege in it. So I know seniors that y'all will get enough commencement speeches and you will get enough encouragement that you don't need another one. But I would really encourage you to pay careful attention to these words because they were God-given to you. He knew something. He knew one of you or all of you are going to be deeply affected by these words, or he wouldn't have given them. To you as parents and as friends, church members, all related to this, the instruction and the, and the guidance are also deeply, deeply profound in this passage. Here is God, by the hand of Paul, writing to a young man who faces the same challenges that our young people face today. The story hasn't changed much. And what he needed to tell them to encourage them and to give them direction is very, very much the same. So I'm going to begin this morning in Titus chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. It begins this way, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise you. So these are the words, beginning words that... Paul gave to Titus. In chapter 1, he's already described the size of the challenge, to describe the enormity of the challenge that Titus was going to be facing. But this was a powerful instruction from an older, wiser Paul to his young friend. I want to tell you, he was not trying, nor should we try, to give you a manual to live by. I can assure you it won't work. There have been many, many parents who've tried only to watch their children almost explode when they got outside that bubble that Parker was talking about. 
I could write you a manual. I could even tell you that the Bible is that manual and you would not be able to sustain your life very well with that piece of information. Listen as as carefully as you can, especially those of you who are seniors. God is not trying to give you a manual to live by. Know it very well by now. What that will get you is behavior modification or behavior training that will only affect you from the outside in. You hear it, you're instructed by it, hoping that as parents that it will make some type of an internal change in them. I want to tell you what that will produce. We live it every single day. It will produce moralism, or worse, it will produce religion. Anytime you try to use an instruction book or a manual to try to tell you how to behave according to what you think God has said, it will every time create religion. And I want to tell you, the world has got enough of that. And they're sick of it. And I'm sick of it. Religion has not been able to deliver anything to the world that has any sustainable or lasting value. He had no desire to tell them how to live or how to behave. He's writing to those in this particular passage who have had an experience with God. It begins with that verse 11 when it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation. So he's talking to people who understand a little bit the grace of God. For those of us who know it, we understand that while we were yet sinners, still condemned under that reality, Christ died for us. That's the pure, definitive grace of the Scriptures. While we were yet sinners, when we didn't deserve it, Christ died for us. That is the grace that's being mentioned here. What Paul is trying to instruct us is for those of us who have experienced that grace, he wants us to know that we have a reality, the responsibility of living from the inside out. I want us to get that picture today because most of us still try to live from the outside in. What's the tragedy of it? How fast does the outside change? How fast do the situations change? The circumstances change? Even the instruction change on how we're supposed to behave, how we're supposed to accept, how we're supposed to reject, what are we supposed to believe in? All of those things that can affect us from the outside in are changing all the time. We know that. We live that. I want to tell you, if you're going to live in turmoil, that's all that's required is try every day to adjust to the outside things that are affecting your life. Not counting the life of your family, of your children, of your job, of those things. Just those outside things that affect you. Read the news in a given day. How many outside things are changing that we're expected to adjust to? If you're going to find peace, if you're going to find anything sustainable, it will be because you have found something inside you that begins to be bigger than the things on the outside. I wish I could give you a gift today that would change your life forever because I would, to the best of our ability, place something inside you bigger, more powerful, stronger, more dynamic than anything external that you will ever face. The story of the Bible, as we open it up, is about God who put us, humanity, Adam and Eve, into His presence where they were experiencing Him as an external reality. They were in the garden and God was present, but they were experiencing Him as an external reality. And we know how well that story goes. We know the outcome of that. But we see through the Scripture 
and the telling of a brand new story, as we can find it in Colossians chapter 1, that God's great plan was never to be the God outside of us, affecting us externally, but the great plan of God, when sin could be dealt with by the blood of His Son, the great plan of God was that He would put Himself, His presence, inside of me, so that I didn't have to live outside in, I could live inside out. I use this illustration often. I have one of these just plain clear cups sitting on my desk just about all the time because when someone sits across from me, I need for them to know foundationally that the good news of Jesus Christ that we have often taught is not the good news that we are designed to hear. Because our story has been that this cup was dirty and we need a drink so we instinctively know what to do with it. If that cup is dirty and I need a drink, I take it and I wash it. But if you're sitting there thirsty and I slide this empty, clean cup across to you, what's the likelihood of it satisfying your thirst? Zero. Why? Because even though it's tremendous news that Jesus Christ came by His blood to clean this cup, to clean this vessel, to deal with the dirt that's there, the fact that I'm dirty, the fact that I'm a sinner. Jesus came to shed His blood to clean the cup. But that clean cup won't satisfy what I need inside me. Because now that the cup is clean, it's qualified, capable of being filled. That's the good news. Jesus came to die. Great news. Jesus came to shed His blood so that this vessel can be cleaned. Great news. But the full news, the complete story, is that now clean, it can hold the Spirit of God. That's the story. I used this illustration last week. If I have a balloon that's just a balloon and I drop it, it's going to fall. If I take that balloon and I blow it up with air from my lungs, it's still just going to fall. It might be a little bit slower. But if I fill that balloon up with helium, what's it going to do if I let go of it? going to the ceiling. Why? Because that outer shell is capable of only demonstrating what it has inside of it. It's going to behave according to what's in it. You begin to get the message, you begin to hear and get the connection, because whatever's in the cup is going to determine the value of the cup. We get this scripture, we know it very well, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency is not of me but of Him, the one who fills the cup, who fills the vessel. We were always designed to live inside out. And I want to tell you, if you, want to, if you find people who are truly happy, they figured it out. Because I don't have the privilege of getting to exclude external circumstances that are going to be hard. I don't have the privilege of taking away from you difficult situations that are going to be challenging for you. I don't have that kind of power. I don't have that kind of privilege as a pastor, as a believer, as your friend. I can't do it. But what I can tell you is that God designed you, designed us, so that what is in us is greater than that which is outside. That ring is in by the thing of a verse. Greater is He that is in me than he that's in the world. But boy, we better figure out early how to live inside out, or the outside will wear our inside to a prize. I love the story. David and I were just mentioning this this morning. When the disciples were in the boat and the storm was raging, 
And they gathered up and they concluded that they were in great danger and wondering why Jesus slept. And they wake him up and say, do you not care that we perish? And he stands in the boat and he says, he rebukes the storm and says, peace be still and they're amazed. What was going on then? To the disciples, the storm on the outside was bigger than the peace inside. You woke Jesus up, it was just the exact opposite. The peace inside of him was bigger than any storm that was going to come against him. Jesus knew the answer. He knew the secret that we're trying to express to each one of us this morning. You have to learn to live from the inside out. If I tried to teach this cup how to behave, if I stood here and just talked to the cup, well, there's a couple of things that would occur. If I stood here very long and talked to the cup, y'all would help me off the stage and find somebody that could help people like me. If I try to teach the cup to be better, what I'm going to get is religion. If I fill the cup with his presence, what I'm going to get is power. You get to choose which one you want. If you flip over to Titus 3, 7, and 8, it makes it very clear. Those who have experienced the grace of God, that what happens in that moment is that we're justified and we become heirs. That's the truth of what happens to us by the grace of God. But we will also recognize what that grace in us is designed to produce from us. Let's look back at that passage in Titus chapter 2 for just a second. For the grace of God, I won't leave that other piece off because it's just explanation. For the grace of God teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present world. What's this say? That that which is in me begins to teach me on the outside how to behave. And that they should be powerfully connected. That if, if this is in me, if I have experienced the grace of God, if I can sit here today and say, I know that Jesus, had I been the only sinner, if God had just loved me, He would have still gave His Son. I, I'm sitting here looking at Levi, remembering what Leah told him when she was helping him understand salvation. Because she was quoting John 3.16, For God so loved the world. But when she got to that part, she said, For God so loved Levi. And that was these moments, powerful moments, of salvation and transformation in the child's life when we recognize that God loved us that much. But I want to tell you, that love, once we experience recognizing that He did this for us, to believe that that would never produce an outward change, we're fooling ourselves. If we believe we can experience the grace of God and it not change us, and it not create something else in us. Do you hear what he's saying? Do you hear him say, what I did in you will establish what is done by you. What I have done in you will produce what is done externally by you. Also in reverse, what I see being produced from you will tell me directly what you think I did in you. Now that's alarming. What he sees us do externally, recognizing that this link is not one that we can create or manipulate. What we do externally reveals 100% what we think happened to us internally. You can't separate them. You might for a moment. But you can't very long, because what you believe He did in you is going to determine what is going to happen by you. Then the other is true as well. Examine the fruit. 
see what's happening externally in somebody's life, I can tell you what they think about God. I can tell you whether God matters much to them or not. Whether they understand the sacrifice and the price and the grace that was given simply by the external reality that they're creating from their life. It's no different than if I put helium in that balloon, I know what's going to happen and I know it every single time. Because that outer is going to reflect what happens on the inside. It's a consistent, consistent story. This entire letter to Titus challenges him to teach, challenges him to preach, and encourages him to demonstrate by his life that ever-present link between what you profess to believe and how you behave. That's what Paul is telling Titus. There is an ever-present link between what you profess to believe and how you behave. Try to separate it. It won't work. I don't know if we understand much in this day and time what a creed is. It's basically a statement of your life. What is your creed? It's the foundational things that you believe. And I would ask you to recognize quickly that your creed, what you believe inside, will always determine your conduct. Whether you are steadfast and faithful or compromising, it will always be determined by your creed. It's hard to separate. So when Paul begins to write to Titus and give him this instruction, he's saying, if this church is going to work well, turn with me back to Titus chapter 2. Just go back to verse 1. I'm not going to go very far into this. I'm going to read it and then just explain a couple of things before we're dismissed. Verse 1, Titus chapter 2. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. The aged women, the older women likewise, that they be in behavior as becomes holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine. Teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to your own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded in all things showing themselves a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part might be ashamed having no evil things to say of you. I want to draw attention to one point here. You can weigh those things about yourself. For these seniors, most of our direct impact is finished. There will certainly be influence of those that are closest to them. They will still affect their lives. But most of the authority that we have over these lives as seniors is pretty well spent. But I want to tell you, that our generation, that younger generation that we look to and that we admire, but that also has questions, is because the older men and the older women have been removed almost from the story. So much attention today is on youth. So much of conversation today is on the youth and them being the future of our churches, the future of our nation. But I want to tell you that that does not mean, nor should it imply, that the importance of older men and women should ever, ever, ever be reduced. Don't let anyone, older men and women, 
Don't let anyone reduce you out of the story. If anything, it should be increased. I mentioned this in Bible study this morning. There is a difficult and almost tragic move to the idolatry of a youth culture in America. Especially in religion. As much students, seniors, as I love you, and I respect what you know, it is not you that I'm going to come to for what an older generation can provide. You haven't been there yet. Not to diminish what you know, but the wisdom of men and women sitting in this congregation that are older is a valuable, valuable prize and gift waiting for you to tap and to receive because they have been where you haven't been. I watch churches reinvent themselves over and over to become younger and younger and younger and to do those things that become more and more appealing to those who are younger. We recreate and recreate and recreate youth within churches. And I want to tell you, it is to our detriment because there's such wealth in the reality of what Paul is trying to teach us. Older men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity and patience. The older women likewise, that they in behavior as much become holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. One of the reasons why our children are having such a hard time learning to live from the inside out is because they have been watching parents for a long time live from the outside in. And Paul is trying to tell Titus, trying to tell us there is great wisdom, there is great knowledge, there is great experience in the strength and steadiness of men and women who have faithfully given themselves, received from the Lord, and learned to live from the inside out. I will encourage you seniors, encourage you students, find those people, search them out, look for them, those who have learned. You can tell it. You can tell by whether they live in turmoil or whether they live in peace. You can tell whether they're moved by the world or whether they move the world themselves. You can tell whether or not the atmosphere changes their direction or if their direction changes the atmosphere that they are in. You can tell which men and women they are. I would encourage you to lock yourself onto them. Listen to them. Titus found it in Paul. Timothy found it in Paul. Mark found it in Barnabas. You want the great blessing. Learn today to live from the inside out and attach yourself to people who know how to do it because you will be blessed powerfully by that. If you're sitting here today and you have learned to adapt to an outside-in life, God's offering you something different today. It's not magic. He says, what you want, what you need, inside, he's offering right now. Inside out to change your life. Lord, we come to you in this moment thanking you that you create such an offering this morning. I know that there are young people and adults that are sitting here in this congregation this morning that are in great turmoil because things outside of them are greater than the things on the inside. I pray, Lord, this, this morning, in this moment, that you will move on those lives and those stories to help us realize that the greater is he, you, that's in me.